Bam. Hey, everybody. Uh, we are super excited to be here with you today. Uh, it is April the 8th, 2020. We uh, sort of mark the dates based on what's happening these days in the world. Uh, we're here with the Surf and Sales podcast, again, with my good friend and host, uh, Scott Lees. And we are super excited to speak with a guy who we've gotten to know very well over the years, uh, certainly a, a thought leader in sales, understands it at multiple levels, uh, Rob Jepson from Exvoyant. So, Rob, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Super pumped to be here. Fan of your show. Uh, love your format. And uh, it's something that now that I'm on lockdown, I'm listening to you guys on binge these days. So <laughs> the whole plan, that's why we do it that way, right? Yeah, we, we knew this was going to happen. So <laughs> 60 so what, episodes in 60 days or whatever number we're at. Yeah. Tell me what's so, coming next so I can go ahead and bet on that right now, okay? Uh, let's see. You're coming out next. Um, oh, he means in the world, Richard. He means in the world. <clears throat> We're so yeah, so, uh, but anyway, so so Rob, for those who don't know you, um, you know, you're the founder and CEO of Exvoyant. Just give folks a little bit of a background on on the pains Exvoyant solves, what y'all help other companies do. Not from a, you're not trying to sell it, but give them context. Yeah. No, um, we're I want to hear about. I want to hear about little Rob. I want to hear how Rob, you know, started, you know, selling snow cones or something at the age of seven. You know, I want to hear what that story is like. All right. I, uh, I love it. I'm excited. This, this will be fun. So Exvoyant's really simple. First of all, to help understand what we do, it's a play on words. Exvoyant is a play on the words for clairvoyant. Clairvoyant is a magical person that can predict the future, right? And we believe that no one needs to predict the future more than a sales leader for so many reasons. I mean, Scott, you're the king of managing expectations, right? <laughs> and, and, and so, um, so you, you'll relate to this. We believe that no one needs to predict the future more than a sales leader, but there should be no magic required. And if you understand how to execute the right way and manage the right way and, and approach the job the right way, you can create predictability through execution and create what we call an exvoyant culture, uh, predictability through execution. That's the name of the company. Uh, the story is important because that's all we try to do. We, we're really simple, Richard. We work only with sales leaders. Um, we help sales leaders take how they lead and manage their team and do it at scale. Like, you know, we work mostly with market leaders in, in uh, financial institutions, technology companies, or uh, industrial or manufacturing organizations. But give a little bit more, put a little yeah. more meaning on that bone. Like I'm going you, to, yeah. So here's what happens. Do you mean playbooks? Do you mean training? Do you mean management training, SDR? Like, like yeah. what does that mean so people have context? So here's the context. <clears throat> I'm thinking of uh, one of the top electronics companies in the world that have 8,000 salespeople. They're, they're our customer. They spent a lot of money building playbooks and training. So to make sure they <laughs> nope. But, 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 but keep guessing. You'll pro you, you, when you get a maybe from me, you'll know who it is. Okay. Um, um, they invested heavily so they don't have 8,000 different ways their products are sold. Right. They wanted to make sure that they had one way their products sold for those 8,000 reps. They have about 850 sales managers. And so I asked the CEO of the company, what is your way to make sure you don't have 850 different ways that those reps are managed and led? And the answer was, we don't. And so that's what Exvoyant does. We take, regardless of what your sales, method, sales process or sales methodology is, and whatever your approach to leadership is, I don't care. We give you a way to use technology to make the one-on-one -on -one be way more purpose-driven. Too often the one-on-ones about looking backwards and having people justify what they did. We use the one-on-one to have reps and leaders make plans on what's gonna happen next week or next month or whatever your period of time you wanna look at is. 
to either be very purposeful in how they change their productivity uh, equation, which you guys know the sales equation better than anyone, opportunities, average deal size, win rate and speed, activities around those things. And the other is how you do deal coaching. I found that most sales managers are deals chasers, and we can talk about why that's such a problem. What we do is we help have purpose-driven activities that either fuel your overall kind of pipeline and your and the fuel for your for well, that, I, or getting getting verifiers for for deals. Yeah, but I don't, I don't like hearing. So, Rob, I don't like hearing buzzwords like purpose-driven activities. Okay. Eat that. So, what is a purpose-driven activity? Just working hard. Like I think most people, Richard, I don't think it's a buzzword. I would, if we were having our own showdown, like we're going to have this Thursday, I, I would tell you why I would disagree with you politely. Of course, uh, purpose-driven activities is more than just working hard. I think too many people try to use gamification and gamesmanship and just have volume levels of activities. What we say is purpose. We're going to do this activity to get this very specific like result. Like what, Rob? Pick pick any part of a sales process. Here's an easy part. Early in the funnel. Instead of just reaching out to someone, um, I'm going to reach out to someone about this thing to get this response. Like, you know, early on, it's easy to say, I want to get a, I want to get a, uh, get a meeting schedule. That's too easy. Sure, Later again, stage. That's, a, that's a reason. So you're talking about the reason someone reaches out, not the activity itself. What activity right. is that that delivers the reason that delivers and every that single company is different, Richard. And that's why, what we, that's why we work with such it's a broad free. universe. What's that? Give me three, because I can three name activities? them off the top of my head. Of course, yeah. So like emails or phone calls could be activities. The That's way you I create, yeah. The I way you create proposals could be an activity. The way you deliver proposals is an activity. Excellent. The way you follow up is an activity. And so That's we help people take those things and get very granular, unique to their world, and have them be very intentional. Rather than just volume, we have them become very intentional. So leaders can help reps change their intentionality of how they do their job rather than just how hard they work. Let me, let me, let me, let me interject here before Richard picks a fight with another guest of ours, which is <laughs> a common theme. So you, you, yeah, look at me. I'm the peacemaker. Who knew? So, uh, Rob, you, at the very beginning, you alluded to this, um, funny dialogue that you and I and a bunch of other uh, friends and colleagues were having the other day about managing expectations. And you've been, you've been a sales leader multiple times over now you're you're a founder what is the difference in how you go about forecasting between a sales leader when you're a CRO or VP of sales and how you try to forecast now as a founder and as a CEO talk a little bit about that dance because that's more or less what we were chatting with you know the other day chatting about the other day so a rep has their expectation a VP of sales discounts what the rep's expectation is when I was the VP of sales right and I discount that uh, then the, the VP of sales takes whatever they believe their, their realistic case and maybe not their sandbag case, what I really know I can deliver on. Uh, I think we've had this conversation, um, Scott, the VP of sales job is to not miss what they say they'll do. I, I really think that's what, what it really yeah. is. It, it's yeah. not so much to do what someone tells you. It's to not miss what I told you I could do. Yeah. As a that, founder, go ahead. I was gonna, I was going to say that that is I think a uh, a tough lesson for new VPs of sales in particular to to learn because you go into a role and you 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 know sometimes you get this number put in front of you with a little bit of dialogue sometimes no dialogue from the founder or the CFO and you want to you want to please right and you want to you think you're a you know a, a hero right like I can I can do it. I can hit anything I can lead my team but you come up, you come up short, right? And so I've, 
was joking the other day talking about how I, you know, I push back on the, the founder and whatnot. So that, that's, that's some of the context. And I know that, that you know, and I know you've been there and done that. Yeah. Um, As a founder though, Scott, I take what the VP of sales does and then I discount that. Yeah. And, so you, um, okay. Yeah. And that's, so that's, that's the relationship. It's, it's, yeah. it's division, man. That's what so it is, is division. Because it's even more risky for you to, to miss your number that you put out there, right? To the board. and Because that's when you get fucked. Yeah. And, right. um, yeah. and you're allowed to, to miss once, but not more than once. And, and so as soon as they you, think that you... How do you... Richard, Rob, in your opinion, right? Let's say, you know, and, and I'm going to flip it. Let's say you were that CEO who doesn't want to discount even what the VP of sales says, right? Like you're that other CEO yeah. who's overinflating, you know, you're adding 20% to pad the number to get to the real 100% you really want. And you got a guy like Scott, who's much more of a, a realist. Um, how would you want that VP of sales to actually deliver that message to you? Because I think part of the challenge for a lot of people is we know in our head what we want to do. We just don't know how to say it in an articulate way, right? Scott's way more polished at picking a fight with you than I am, right? He just picked a great <laughs> fight with you, but I, I, you know, that's just the way it works. So how do you think CEOs, how should a VP say it? And more importantly, how should that CEO or, or VC even try to hear it? Well, the VC one's one I can't speak to because I've never been one. Um, so I, 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 I can't say how they should hear it. But what I think is, I think pipelines too often are based on company averages. And I think company averages are stupid. Um, I think Again, now we're going to get into forecasting and, and this, I don't know how much you want to spend time on this. I see people spend, there's two ways of doing it. And one way is completely stupid. And whenever I work with companies that do it this way, I just scratch my head and say, how have you survived as a sales leader? Let's pretend they say that they have um, a million dollar deal and they have a 70% win rate at that stage. And so they forecast $700,000. Yeah. Well, I already know the forecast is flawed. Because yeah. what you're for sure not going to get is seven. You're going to get a million or you're going to get zero unless you got someone who discounts. But you're damn sure not going to get 700 grand. Yeah. And um, we work with pretty big companies. I'm thinking of one that has 3,000 reps. And I picked a fight with them on that, Richard, to, speaking of yeah. picking fights. And, you know, you had to tell them that they were messed up without telling them they're messed up. But, like, no wonder you guys have Why 43%. It's so funny. Why do people want to pay all three of us money yeah. to tell them like, cause I say it to people and they, they kind of go, yeah, you kind of get this. Yeah. I've been wondering about that. Yeah. You know I mean? Which well, is good. Well, like, that's, hey, that's good business for us. Like I get it, but is it because we're outside their bubble that they don't want to trust? There's a lack of trust to the VP of sales because there's a lack of trust in sales in general. Like, where do you think that comes from? And, and there's no right answer. I'm just curious. It's a great question. I, I think part of it is part of it is executive teams very often haven't done the job that the three of us have done. Like if you haven't sold before and you haven't been in the trenches, they can't understand why you can't give them predictability. They say if it's, it's a manufacturing company, I give you 100 inputs, I should get 100 freaking outputs. Um, when I was in college, I did an internship with Hewlett Packard on their formatter factory floor. <laughs> building, you know, watching robots build printed circuit boards for printers. And they literally had it posted everywhere. It was zero defects. We have a hundred boards. We got to ship to China. They better get a hundred boards that work. 
Well, in sales, man, the only way you'll ever have a hundred percent win rate is if you sandbag. And even then at the very end, I've seen deals that were in the bag disappear on the last oh, yeah. day. And you, you oh, guys yeah. have too. I mean, the, we, that, I mean, that's the old curse. That's the curse, Rob. That's, yeah. the, that's the baseball analogy curse. Don't talk about a no hitter while it's in God, no. Yes. Right? So Richard, to your, I yeah. think that's part of why is too many CEOs and freaking CFOs and people that have never, ever sold. They don't understand that. And that's why I think the best way to, to do that is based on company customer verifiers. I don't believe in exit criteria. I think the word exit criteria makes salespeople think I do this and that's the exit criteria. I fucking did it. Okay. And so and I think of phrase you used though. What was the phrase you said? Customer verifiers. I need an actual physical something from a customer that if I do something then my process needs to say, then you need to do something. And only after you've done something, do yeah. I move forward to the next, to the next stage? It, Rob, Rob has a real scientific word because he's smarter than me. I just call it homework. I give, I give mm. the customer a homework. You have yeah. this assignment. You have to do this thing and yep. get it back to me. That's yep. the best way to forecast. Because if you start understanding what the homework assignment is and you don't allow someone to progress a deal to the next stage unless the homework assignments come in, I like that, Scott. I'm going to steal that in our, when we talk to people. That's how you know what really is happening with a deal. You've got to transform customers from spectators to participants. Yeah. And if you can't make yeah. that transformation, then you don't have predictability. At least that's my point of view. I have a strong point of view. I've, it's what our company helps people do. It's yeah. based on my, what I've found work. And when I have people that tell me, trust me, I'll get this deal, you should be scared shitless. Yeah. But if I can say, the reason I believe it is we have this homework assignment that's come due and it came on time. So there's a couple of ways you can forecast. One is you should be able to kind of have an idea, generally speaking, how long it should take in stage. I think cycle time from start to close is fine, but I think it's way more interesting to look at it in days and stage. Because that's when you know something's behaving normally or not. And you know, homework should come in on time. Yeah, exactly. And I would take it even a step further, maybe, Rob. It's homework can come in time without a reminder. Yes. Homework can come in time with a reminder or a prompt. Yeah. Homework can come in time late with no reminder. Homework can come in time late with multiple reminders, right? Yep. Yeah. And that's what you – that's the, the – the differentiator to me like if I got this homework assignment back ahead of time or on time and I didn't have to pester them at all that has a higher probability that has a higher you know kind of win rate or closer 100% forecast type thing it, our, that's one of the things our yeah. tech does back to your first thing Richards our tech helps manages the homework assignments and if it came in on time with reminders so here's so, so I want to give some people some I want to give people some homework who are listening or watching uh, so one and see if you guys agree with me if you're in sales and you're having to go through some interviews, right? Or you're a VP of sales going through an interview. I think one of the best questions you should be asking everybody when it's your turn to ask questions is how often do you go on a sales call, Mr. Or Mrs. CEO, right? Just to I see just, and, and, and you know, if they get squirrely about it, it doesn't mean you shouldn't take the job, but at least, you know, like at least, you know, what, cause we so many times VPs of sales, particularly, Yes, you have the power to do this. Yes, you have this, you know, all through this interview process, you're, you're sort of being told yes. But until you really know that, you know, that, that's a really interesting thing. The other thing on the other side is CEOs better be prepared to answer that question and not fumble it. Because as soon as you fumble, <laughs> right, like what are, what are especially, sales especially, good at? Right, especially right now, right? If and when right. we come out of this, I, I, I think salespeople are going to say, hey, Rob, you know, um, 
you, you led your company through this particular thing. I'm sure you know how hard it was to sell. Were you selling during this period of time, right? And, and I know you and we've had this conversation. Yeah. We talked about how you just sold and you just closed the deal. And, you know, kudos to you. I, I hope, I'm not optimistic, but I hope a lot of founders are doing what you did and leaning into that and being like, look, guys, I know how hard it is. I'm going to do it right there with you in the trenches. Yeah, I think you're both right on. I think for me, and maybe I'm different, I, I, I define myself, we didn't get into Little Rob yet. Uh, I'm a deal guy. I'm I, wanna, I, hear that next. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I suck at most things. Okay, I, I do. I suck at most things. But I'm yeah. pretty good at the sales thing. I'm pretty good at the sales leadership thing. And those are skills I that think, I think. Yeah. But I also think you're, I think the other, and maybe you're discounting yourself. I think you're very good at reading people. But I know that because I've, I've known you for so long now. Like yeah. you can read a situation, you can read people, which is part of the sales skill. That's like part of, that's part of selling though, right? Rob, Rob's right. being, Rob's being a little bit humble yes. in, the, in the fact that he is differentiated because here's a, a sales leader who is now a CEO, right? And we've all worked for people uh, in CEOs, CEO roles who had knew nothing about sales, no experience in it whatsoever. I've often said like, if I ever go back to work for somebody else, I'm going to go work for a CEO who comes from a sales background because I don't know what that's like and what a different experience that might be. Right. So he, he's different because he, he knows what salespeople and sales leaders are going through. Yep. Well, for me, I try to make it a competitive edge. I, well, I'll tell you what I have to watch out for guys because I love deals and I'm super passionate about our company. And, and there's not a lot of like when we get big deals, like before I started this company, I ran sales with a thousand reps. I had to do 1.8 billion in new revenue annually. It's a pretty big number. And um, I had to put people on the team that reported to Wall Street. So when I can talk to these large enterprise customers, I can empathize, not just sympathize, I can empathize because I did that job. Yeah. And when I sit in a boardroom with them and I talk about what the reason I founded this company is I was doing this manually with freaking spreadsheets that were linked and I had a staff of eight people that were getting us what we needed to do so I could do this. And it got me to a point where 72% of those thousand people hit quota. And, and then after I left and we didn't have it, it went down to 46 until we put tech in and now that company's back on with 75% in quota. That helps, but I have to watch out because I'll, I'll freaking take over sales calls. My salespeople are like, yeah. don't bring Rob on a call. Yeah, he'll yeah. freaking emasculate. Yeah, I think he will take the freaking thing over. Yeah, that, that, that's funny that that instinct is still there so, so profoundly in you because, you know, when I first became a sales manager, I, I like hear people on the phone as I'm right there and it's like nails on a chalkboard and I'm like, Jesus, yes. give, me, give me the fucking phone. Just give me the phone. No. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm with you. So, so tell, tell, us about, tell us about Little Rob, man. How long have you Before we go to Little Rob, I have, I, have, I have one more question before we go to Little me. Rob. Sorry. Hit me. Because uh, we kind of beat up on the CEOs. What advice would you give to these CEOs about trusting their heads of sales, right? Like, how do you, you know, and, 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 and you know, in my mind, it's, to your point, it's often that tech-minded CEO, someone who's never carried the bag. What kind of advice can you give them to sort of not just chill out and just sort of trust, but, you know, what do you tell your customers now when you've got that kind of CEO? So the first thing that I would tell these CEOs if they're listening to us, first of all, they're smart to listen to you guys. Because here's the thing, CEOs, if there's one thing you need to be connected to, it's how revenue enters your company. It's the lifeblood. So if you don't know the sales process, I'm going to steal from Scott right now. If you are not addicted to the process, okay, um, 
get addicted to the process. I think a CEO should know the sales process as well as the VP of sales. They may not know every deal, but they should know what, and for me, and both of you guys know this, and I think we're agree because we've talked about this. Here's my definition of a process to the CEOs. It's not what your team says. It's what are the set of experiences you need to create so a customer can buy. You need to know what those experiences are and you better know what the homework assignments are. Because if you can know that, then you can be intelligent speaking with your VP of sales or any of the salespeople without coming across as disconnected. So that's what I would suggest they do is I don't think enough know the sales process well enough. They think sales processes are tied to VP of sales. So if I hire Scott and Scott always beats the 18 month number, Scott's here for at least three to five years, whatever, he's going to bring his process in. Or if I bring Richard in, he's going to bring his process in and whoever hires is going to be their process. Well, I would say as the, as the CEO of the company, if you don't know what the set of experiences are, the mechanics of how you deliver that, leave that up to the VP of sales. But know what the set of experiences are and the homework and know it well. That's the first thing that I would say. Second, um, make sure that you have such a good process for who you hire that you can trust them. Because if you know what the homework assignments are, it'll allow you to trust what's going on because you'll understand why activity matters. Volume metrics to me are bullshit unless you know why they matter, why they tie to the homework. Like how many of these are reminder calls for the homework? Uh, you should know why activities matter and don't just look at total calls. That's a bullshit metric. I, I don't believe in gamification. I think gamification is stupid. Um, that's why I think you need to know I would the homework agree on that one. You disagree? Yeah, well, I think you have to motivate people in different ways, right? And I will, I will defer in the sense of, look, Richard, when I got 8,000 sales reps or 800 sales reps and they're all in different places and, you know, I, I understand. Like, that, that's just a logistics type that's thing. That's bullshit. So, but I do think people need to be – it's a question of then how do you motivate, right? Um, I, now, that's a good conversation, Richard. I would say that's a very – because there's only four levers that lead to sales production. The aptitude of the people you hire, their level of motivation, so we should be talking about that, the skills they possess, and then their understanding of role. And so everything we do should be around those four things. And yeah, hiring the right people, we can have a podcast on that. The right way to motivate, we should be talking about that. How you hey, develop skills, aptitude of, the, aptitude of the people you hire. And so the question is, would you rather have people that are more wired for sales or they're terrified of their own shadow? Easy, right? Level <laughs> of motivation. Do you want people that you have to kick them in the ass every morning or do you want people that are fired up and going after it and they're five calls in before they ever see you show up, right? Um, the third one is levels of skills. Uh, my definition of a skill is something that you can achieve mastery in, not mastery, uh, proficiency in, in six months or less. Uh, I'm not saying that you're, you're a subject matter expert in six months or less. We have a lot of people that are in our world now that you, you two I know or will agree with me on this one. We have a lot of people that think that they're experts way before they really are an expert. And, um, and so I think the development of skills is super important. And then the last one is role. What do I believe my, my job is? And the reason role is so important is your role perception is how you, is the lens you look through that drives what is a high value activity or a low value activity. And then that drives how you spend time and what tools you use. My personal opinion is if you get role right, then you'll get more high value activities and people will understand why. You get people doing more of the right things, they'll win more. That fuels motivation. That will then have them do more of those things, which will give you more observable moments. So you can now see what are people doing and then that will help you understand what skills to develop at the individual level. I love the, I love those four, uh, four levels. Can I, 
can that's I, why I want to do it. Can I ask yeah. about a, Can I ask about like a four B or like no. a fifth one? It's similar to understanding of role for me would be understanding of self. And, he, I like and here, that. here's what I mean by that. And I'm sure you've seen this before. It's very closely tied to the understanding of role. So when I first got into sales, you know, first of all, I don't have a business background. You know, I, I'd never, I never have a lemonade stand. I never sold anything when I was growing up. I but wouldn't I, even hire him 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, that's, that's a truth. wouldn't fact. even interview him. <laughs> Yeah. So, but what I, what I had was the athletic competitive mindset where like every day was game day. So I needed to feel like I, you know, won or lost like either way, I either wanted to feel like I was king of the world or the lowest of the, the low. Right. So I knew then that a long enterprise sale for me wasn't going to work because I wasn't going to get instant gratification enough. Mm. So I started my career in a transactional kind of uh, kind of environment. So, and I think a lot of people don't understand themselves well enough and, and therefore put themselves in positions where they're going to, to fail. I've seen enterprise people who don't have the engine needed to be in a transactional role, try it and just can't handle it, burn out straight away. And I've seen transactional people go to big enterprise roles and it takes way too long and it's not fun and whatnot. So to me, like, understanding of the self is closely tied to understanding of the role. I love that. I, I would add to that, for instance, I love what you said, like transactional versus enterprise. I would say like mature, well-established company versus younger startup yes. kind of company. Also, also very yeah. important. Yeah. I would add those. So I would say call it a 4B or a 5 if you want, but I also would say you could even put that in aptitude. So what are the aptitudes of this person? This person okay. likes to win instant yeah. gratification. This yeah, person is, you know, they want to win big giant deals. They don't care how long it takes. Yeah, they want to be the, yeah. the biggest deal in the history of the company. I would say that that goes into the aptitudes of who you hire. So, yeah. what you, so understanding who you bring to the team is critical. Then how they're motivated is critical. How you layer skills on so they can do that job. And then making sure it's all surrounded with a clear understanding of why you're here in the first place. Yeah. That's my model. Again, it's... It's, a good it's the Jepson way of looking at the world for better or for worse. So, so, so tell us about little Rob was little Rob a hustler. Little Rob came out of the freaking womb looking to fight someone, man. I came out <laughs> uber competitive from day one. And, um, what would, so what does that to, mean to your parents? If we asked your parents, we asked your mom and dad, they'd be like, Oh, we noticed this when he was three and he did blank when they would try to tell me the best way to do something and I would debate with them that there was a better, faster or smarter way of doing something. Um, I, I, I didn't take instructions well at all. I, I found myself getting in trouble often. You guys will like the way I got punished though, starting from when I was about five years old. My dad was a engineer at Hewlett Packard and he's on the team that invented the original laser jet printer, interestingly. And um, in fact, I've been around innovation my whole life, watching my dad do stuff that I hate engineering. Like I hate math. I hate the only math I can do guys is commissions. I can do commissions all day long, but that's the only math I'm good at. Um, my mom was a writer when I would get in trouble because I was very sarcastic. I didn't follow instructions. Well, I was always looking to follow my own way of doing things. They would make me write a theme. I would have to write an essay about why what I did was wrong. Or, oh my gosh. I love this. Yeah. And so they would make me think it through. The first thing I would have to do is come up with an outline that they would approve the outline. And so I remember my very first theme was 100 words, why I shouldn't beat up my little brother. Why you should. And, 
should not. I should not. I said I should. He absolutely deserved it. I go to the grave right now saying he deserved it. There's the title of the podcast, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) So they they would make me think it through. So I've never been spanked. I've never been grounded. I've never had any of those things. But I have been forced to think it through and write about it and articulate it. Do you still have those or do your parents still have those? So when I got married, one of the wedding gifts to my now ex-wife is, was a file of every theme I ever wrote. They saved oh every God. one of them. Dude, you got to um, those. And so you'll laugh because when I would get in trouble for the same thing, like six months or a month or a week or a day or a year later, they would pull out and they said, this is what you wrote last time. None of this content is any good. Now they didn't call it content then. We call it now. I've been into content creation mode since I was five years old, boys. Okay. (laughs) You got to pull one of those out. Like you got to pull out one, write a blog post on that. Like we're, we've been, we've all been, because technically we've all been in content creation mode since we were, right? That's yeah. hilarious. So, so they you would say, you can't write any of this stuff. You can't write any of this. They would say, you got to count. So back then we had encyclopedias. I'd have to go to the encyclopedia and say, man, what's the wrong reason for doing this? What happens to my, anyway, it's crazy. So, so as I grew up, I was really competitive. Like, like both of you know, Scott, we've talked about sports a lot. Yeah. I, I was very competitive athlete growing up. Um, that competitiveness I found got me in tons of trouble because I would say stupid things, get technical fouls in basketball, get, you know, stay after practice because I would talk back to coach. Um, But when I was in high school, like there's lots of little things that I did because I was always a hustler. You know, my dad would, you know, I would would negotiate with my dad to pay me to do stuff that I probably should have done for free. And then I would hire my little brothers. I was the oldest of seven kids. I would hire my little brothers to do the job for less than dad would pay me. And so I would get it done. And then I would pay my little brothers and sisters less than my dad paid me. And I would make an override on what they did. So I was looking at overrides as a young age as well. Yeah, when I was 12 you, years old. You really were born as a trail leader. <laughs> wow. I, I, had a built-in, I had a built-in workforce that as long yeah. as they didn't talk to dad about it, I was good. You know what I'm saying? So, how many kids do you have now? Four. Four. Can you yeah. bring them on so we can have, ask them about what's it like living with dad? Yeah, <laughs> that would be an interesting one because I talked to we them should do all that. The- we should go to all these people and say, if you've got kids, we want to interview you. We want to interview them. <laughs> My mission is to have, I want my kids to be entrepreneurial. I want them to feel like they're going to make their own way. Like the three of us are, I don't want them to feel like I'm, I'm dependent on someone else. Yeah. You know, like for instance, my daughter, my youngest son has autism. And so I'm, autism is a kid is a cause that I care deeply about. I spent, I spent like $700,000 in cash trying to help him and he's doing really well right now. Um, and, and Scott, we've had this talk you yeah. know, we both, in fact, we should do like, you know, we're in April. It's, it's Autism Awareness Month. We yeah. should do something. We, we Together, we should do something to push yeah. that. I mean, yeah. um, my daughter was very involved in my son's plan. He's now 12 years old. He's done every single thing the doctor said he would never do. He's done everything age appropriate that they said that he would never do. But it took our whole family to do it. And my daughter, she wants to be an occupational therapist for children with autism now. And so she's getting a master's degree in it. And I told her, you're not going to go work for some occupational therapy place. I'm going to freaking bankroll you. And we're going to have you open your own occupational therapy uh, clinic for children with autism. I don't want you to be dependent on someone. You're going to go run your own company. You're going to be a killer female CEO that changes the lives of people that have autism. That's what my kids would tell you. It's like Uh, ambition, work ethic, innovation. That's what I hope that they find is that you're rewarded for being innovative and then working your guts out. So. 
I'm sure no. their uh, objection handling skills are top notch. Oh. <clears throat> I have a son that uh, right now is 19 years old and uh, you should see him handle objections with me. He's very, very good. I, I, <laughs> it's it's yeah. scary. I, I'm like, I don't want to talk to you about this right now. It's just because I've learned with him. It's because I said so, because I said so that's all we're going to say. Now, Richard, I, you'll like this. My senior year. Oh, go ahead. No, no you go ahead. Tell your story. My senior year, I took an economics class. And this was a, there's two defining stories for me, man, that got me to here. Um, the first one is when I was a senior in high school, I took an economics class. The mayor, I lived in Meridian, Idaho, suburb of Boise, Idaho, okay? And uh, that's where Hewlett Packard built all of their laser printers at the time. And so that's why we moved there from Santa Clara. Big change, moved from Santa Clara to Meridian, Idaho. Yeah, yeah, okay? yeah. yeah. And one stoplight in that city when we moved there. And um, we had, we, they put us into five teams and they, in this, in this econ, econ class, they wanted us to all start a business of some kind. And my team was a bunch of like my buddies on the basketball team. And we had just split up from the, we were the biggest school in the state. It cut us in half. And um, we built a hat company and we had this hat for our Meridian, Idaho, still number one. That was our hat, still number one, because we'd split. We were still number one. And so my buddies on the basketball football team were in this team, uh, this company. I was chosen to be the president of the company. And we had to put together, it was very competitive. Whoever made the most money got an A. One team would get an A, okay? Every other team would get something else, but only one would get an A. And so we leveraged football games and the basketball games that afterwards the, the guys that were on the team would sell these hats to everybody that was waiting for us. And, uh, and when we played the school that we competed against, we couldn't keep them in stock because everybody was wanting to wear this still number one hat. And that's when I was introduced to not just like sales at scale. It's not really scale, but what I found was managing inventory. You know, we, we had enough money to buy a hundred hats and then we sold them all. We said, no, what do we do with this hundred? You know, like, well, how do we turn that into 300 hats and 500 hats? And we blew everybody away. It was interesting to me to watch how you had to use capitalist fuel, marketing, uh, attention getting, calls to action. It was, it was this introduction to me. I was like, realized at that point, cause we won, uh, it was super fun. We were profitable when it was all done. It was like, what do we do with this money? He's like, well, you have to donate it to the school. I'm like, no, we're not, we're going to keep it. And we yeah. put on a big party for everyone. We right. just put on a massive party. <laughs> and, and so that, that's what introduced me. I was like, okay, I like this. So that's when I was like, okay, I want to have a, uh, a career where I can actually do stuff like this because I realized, I knew at that point I wasn't going to be a competitive athlete. I love sports. I'm super competitive. And it hit me running a business and being in sales has got to be the closest thing to being an athlete because one person wins and everyone else freaking loses. hundred percent. And, and you get paid based on your performance. The better yeah. you, more you get paid, you don't perform well enough. You get cut from the team. That's it. Huh. That was, why, that was why I got into sales, because that was the only thing I could understand. That mentality right there. So that's why you and I are kindred spirits in that. So that was super cool. So I, I ended up going to college. I played a little basketball in college. That was pretty cool. I stayed really competitive. And I have to pick a major. I'm like, this major thing sucks. There's no major that speaks to me. So my dad wanted me to do engineering, and I, I got the worst grades of my life because I was like, these stupid physics classes. And I'm like, I dropped out of that. Um, I... I looked at all kinds of stuff. I settled on marketing because I felt like it spoke to me the most, but still didn't feel like it was me. And when my senior year of college, I was selected to represent the university at a national competition held by EDS. Now, you, I don't know if you guys remember EDS. You might, Scott, it's a Texas company. It was Ross Perot's old company, Electronic Data Systems, that got sold to Compaq. Okay? 
Yeah, yeah. Massive well, I'll, I'll campus. Like the original Bernie, Scott. Can come come on, let me, let me yeah. just breathe quietly over here in my corner. Make sure <laughs> so they recruited from 40 schools. My school is one of them. They invited a team of four students from each university. The number one marketing student, the number one uh, systems student, the number one HR student, and then the number one finance student. Had to be a team, and they gave you a case competition. You guys are going to like how I finish this story, okay? So we were competing against the biggest schools in the country. All of the Texas schools and then all the top schools that you might think of were there. They put us all up in their corporate housing. It was a super big, like, party environment. Everybody was, like, like meeting the other students. But for whatever reason, I took this serious. I'm so competitive to, like, what you said, Scott. I was like, if we're going to Texas, I'm going to kick all their asses. I'm going to not just win. We are going to kick every one of their asses. And so um, they give you a, a, a case from one of their actual customers. And this will tell you how long ago it was. It was the late 90s. Um, the case was video on demand before it had ever been invented. They had someone that wanted to invent it and they wanted us to evaluate the strength of that business case and where it should be marketed. And they had all of their board members play roles. And so you could get a little bit of information from interviewing these people. And if you ask smart questions, you got better information. If you didn't ask the smart questions, there's information you wouldn't get. Yeah. And the, this was pre-internet, so you couldn't Google information either. So you actually had to get, they had a massive research center and a massive library. And I had the idea, this, this will tell you a little insight to younger Rob, not little Rob, but younger Rob. I sat with my team and I said, okay, let's find out who this fucking customer is. We're going to find out who this customer, the real customer is. And we are going to find the file on these people and we're going to find their annual report. We're going to find everything we can. I don't want to spend time thinking what questions we should ask. Let's spend all of our time figuring out who the real customer is. And we figured it out. It was a company called Spectra Vision. Okay. And we pulled the file. We pulled the file, Richard and Scott, and I copied everything, but I did not refile the file. I kept the file with me for the remainder of the competition. So none of the other schools would be able to do what we did. <laughs> Very Peyton Manning of you. <laughs> exactly Manning style. Yeah. Nobody else would be able to do it. So we were, we had the insight on what they did that failed. We knew what the right things, what the investments were. So when we were done, you had to go and present to the board, each of the four, that 10 schools in each of these divisions is like a final four. And on a, on a Saturday we had to uh, present and basically our presentation was whatever you do, don't do this. Cause we anticipate you'll lose this much. And we got it from their annual report. They said, whatever you do, do do these things for these reasons. And so anyway, we used information better. We presented a better solution. We won our division. Uh, the university I was going to at the time was Brigham Young University. They would, they would not let me compete on Sunday because of their religious affiliation. And that pissed me off. I was so pissed because we had to take fourth place, which was $250 per student. If you won, you got $1,000 per student. I was pissed. I said, you guys get on the plane. I'm going to stay. I'm going to go win this thing, and I'll bring the money home to you guys. Uh, the school told me if, that if I did that, they would expel me from school because it would violate school rules. And uh, there's a whole nother set of stories that comes from that. But that's my story, man. And so I, I said, I'm not going to go work for a big company. I'm going to work in sales. Uh, that led to a lot of people trying to recruit me. And I said, I want to work for a young company where I'll get a chance to do stuff that I don't have to go through political bullshit to do. I want to figure out how to do deals with people. I knew very quickly that learning how to bring revenue in is the king. And Richard and Scott, my 25 years since that has been committed and dedicated to that. Yeah, I was going to say, 25 years ago, you learned the value of research, understanding your, your buyer, if you will, mm -hmm. 
personalization <laughs> even, right? Oh. And figured out the competitive advantage, found the file. I think I'll just keep this file. <laughs> they even said to the, to the teacher advisor that came to make sure we didn't get in the, in the newspaper for the wrong reasons. Um, they said, to them, it's almost like you knew who the client was. It's crazy. They're like, you, 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 you advised us to not do things that had cost us millions of dollars. It's just, we need to hire these students. I was just, we're just <laughs> laughing. It's hilarious. <laughs> well done. Well done. So that's me. And well since done. then, sales, man. Nothing but sales. I'm committed to that. I am about sales. Well done. Well, we're uh, almost out of time here, Rob. What can, uh, what can Richard and I do to uh, continue to help you and, and support you? I'm all in on this April autism. You Let's know. do that. That's yeah. what we should do. Let's do, yeah. we should do something. I don't know what it is, but you know, listen, I'll, I'll just say as a public service to everybody that's listening, cause I love your show. Like I've told you, I've binged your show. I, I, I love both of you guys. Yeah. The reason I, I like you guys is, is you guys are, are committed to elevating the profession. And as that's an what out, I think. As an outside guy, I would, I would tell you guys to have a conversation, record it like this and um, talk about the parenting side of it, right? You're both mm. hyper competitive. You both want to solve problems. This is not something you solve. This is not a problem. Your child doesn't have a problem. This is just who their being is. And I think a lot of times, how do you, when you guys are wired the way you are, how do you balance that, right? And does it make you more empathetic? Does it make you more compassionate? I'm sure Rob will tell you that it's uh, extremely challenging at times as, as oh a, problem, a problem solver by nature. That's my point. I think people would like to hear that um, because that's, that's the stuff I don't think that gets talked about. Well, so many, like, I don't think most people know how prevalent it is, Scott, like people that know, like the, the the prevalence of autism is crazy more with boys than girls. It's the highest divorce rate in the United States, 80%. Um, There, you know, there's so many things that go into it, Richard. And here's what I would say as a, as a service, as we get ready to wrap this and thanks to you guys. If you don't know someone that has autism, that just means they haven't told you, okay? And I mean, it's so prevalent right now. If you don't, you will. You will have people that join your company that are dealing with it either because they have it or it's in their family. Uh, it's, it's a massive thing. It needs to be understood. There's, there's not a cure for it. Um, you can only deal with it. And, uh, and I think that, that organizations and leaders need to be aware of it because it's, it's a reality for every company and the yep. better you are having an awareness, Scott, yep. you know, awareness yep. creates opportunities. Start, start there at least with awareness, right? Yeah. Sure. So. Anyway, you guys are awesome. How can you help? I would love to do that with you, Scott, but keep elevating the profession. You guys have some great guests. You guys are committed to the profession. I love organizations and, and shows like this that help people get better just because you want to help, not because you're trying to sell them anything. You just want to help. And, and I think that's the best way because that's my same commitment. That's why I appreciate both of you guys. Awesome. Thanks, man. Feeling is neutral. Rob, we'll check in with you. We're, uh, we've got our USA versus UK event tomorrow, so we'll see you again tomorrow, man. By the time this thing airs, we will have already taken those guys down and, okay. and uh, beaten them, man. Why don't you just go ahead and record it? you got 30 seconds, Rob. Just say how great it was to beat them. Let's just, you know. Oh, there was nothing better than watching those, those lineys over in the UK have to shut up and take the beating that came that started in 1776, was extended in, two th in the War of 1812, 
It's now happening in golf the last eight times in a row in the President's Cup. And for the first time, it's now happening in sales. Um, thank us that for the fact that we have so many leaders over here that you guys hired to help their sales teams do better. We'll continue to help you out and make sure that you can elevate the profession in the UK as well. Absolutely. Bam. Mic drop. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. That was awesome. <laughs> hey, Rob. See you guys. Appreciate it. Much love. You too.